Well, we are in the middle of a short series on the book of Job. Job was a righteous man who most likely lived during the time of the patriarchs. And Job's peace and prosperity were tragically disrupted when, unknown to him, God pointed out Job to Satan. And then Satan is allowed by God to inflict suffering on Job. So as you can imagine, the book of Job concerns itself with the question of faith in a sovereign God. Can God be trusted? Is he good and just in his rule of the world? And next week, Pastor David Holcomb will conclude our series with an answer to this question. So come back for the conclusion. Today we're going to look at a chapter that lays the foundation for God's reply to Job. Uh, this Sunday, we'll, we'll focus our attention on an important milestone in Job's journey for answers. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to Job 28. Now, in a book that's marked by dense Hebrew poetry, in the dialogue between Job and his so-called friends, we find a standalone poem that focuses on the subject of wisdom, specifically the poem centers around the repetition of a question that's asked twice, once in verse 12 and then again in verse 20. The question reads this, but where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Now, Job's an old book. Some believe Job to be the oldest book in the Bible. And so here we have this question that's nearly 5,000 years old, and yet it's still a very contemporary one, isn't it? The Bible is relevant. It's always up to date. Sociologists and historians, they often refer to specific periods in, in human history based off of advancements in technology. So we can think of like the Bronze Age or the Iron Age or the Age of Exploration or the Industrial Age. Uh, some people say that the age we're in now is the Information Age. So sort of sparked by this advance in computing power and the proliferation of personal computers, what that means is that that nowadays that we have more immediate access to information through these glowing rectangles in our pockets that the generation had before us in like a room full of encyclopedias and reference books. And yet with all this information, with this, this access to so much information, would you say that we have more wisdom? Are we sort of on the dawn of entering the age of wisdom? If you need help answering that question, here's my suggestion. Just start watching daytime television. I have a daughter, she's in eighth grade, and she has recently got into, of all shows, Judge Judy. <laughs> I can't explain it. Like on our DVR right now, we probably have 100 episodes of Judge Judy. Uh, she records it during the day and she'll come back and she'll, this, this is like she'll binge watch, binge watch Judge Judy. And I'm telling you, Judge Judy would not have a television show if scientific progress and technological advancement led to a spike in wisdom. <laughs> it wouldn't exist. One doesn't become wise automatically. While experience and age can lead to greater wisdom, there isn't a causal relationship between the two. You guys know this to be true. Some of you have had the unfortunate experience of having to parent a parent or an older sibling. And I'm not talking about the parenting that comes about because of a, a natural decline in mental faculties. 
I'm talking about the parenting that comes when you have to help someone navigate poor relational or financial decisions because of just unwise choices they've made. And there isn't a causal relationship between education and wisdom either. Should I just keep going? Just power through it? Are you guys getting that in the back? Move it a little closer? All right, fantastic. Wisdom doesn't come with more degrees. So some of the individuals in my life who I would regard as wise, they haven't spent much time in the halls of of higher education. Now to be clear, wisdom can be enhanced by knowledge, but one can be knowledgeable without being wise. Knowledge, for example, is knowing that uh, a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing that you never put tomato in a fruit salad, right? Knowledge might allow you to know how to split an atom, but wisdom is knowing how that technology should and shouldn't be leveraged. So knowledge might uh, allow you to know whether you're right or wrong about a certain fact, but wisdom is knowing that if you are right, you never tell your wife, I told you so. Here, here, if we're we're looking for a definition for wisdom, if you guys want to take notes, we could define it this way. Wisdom, wisdom is the skillful discernment and application of truth for good purposes. Hold on a second. Is there anything I can do? I'm about as as close as my cheek as I can get. Okay, thank you. Just wanted to make sure. Um... I'm sorry about, you know, it, it happened with the, uh, the singing either, and here's what I can just think. Like, you know, the evil one, he doesn't like it when we worship the Lord and that we hear the preaching of the word, and I'm not sure if there's any connection to that at all. It could just be random, but uh, maybe there is something there, and um, we're just, we're just going to trust that the word's going to go forth, and uh, I, I apologize if you have to listen to a little of that. Um, God's still going to honor the preaching of his word. So um, here, here's what we'd say about wisdom. It's the skillful discernment and application of truth for good purposes. There's a lot of information out there, right? And, and wisdom is kind of being able to filter that and process it in order to make good decisions. And if you just have skillful discernment and you apply truth, and it's for selfish motives or it's for evil purposes, we wouldn't call that wisdom. I would call that just being like crafty and cunning. So when we have wisdom, we use it for good purposes. It's going to lead to the, to the flourishing of society or the good of others. And when it comes to what we value, the Bible encourages us to attach a very high value to wisdom. Proverbs 3.13 says, Blessed is the one who finds what? Help me out. Wisdom. And the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Now, here's what I know. It is easy to lose sight of this truth because wisdom isn't tangible. It isn't easy to measure. It isn't easy to quantify. And so what happens is we can say in our minds that we value wisdom, but then practically what happens is we go out and we live in such a way that says, you know what? Blessed is the one who gets the next promotion. Or blessed is the one who achieves the pinnacle of fitness or beauty or style. 
Blessed is the one who moves into a bigger house or spends more weekends at the beach or makes all conference or has the most successful kids. And the Bible says no. It's the pursuit of wisdom that will lead us better off than going hard after any of those other things. Because the wiser we are, here's what happens. The better equipped we are to cope with life. Wisdom is what leads to skill in living. And we can help our friends and family do the same when we have it. Now, chapter 28 is a poem that naturally divides into three sections. The first section is found in verses 1 to 11, and it draws attention to the great skill that man has shown in mining the earth for its valuable resources. Look with me now at the beginning of verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. We're going to continue now in verse 3. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore and gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. So we see the poet lauding the effort and ingenuity that goes into locating and extracting precious materials. We might take for granted the origin of the gold or silver jewelry we're wearing or the copper pot we cooked our eggs on this morning. But it's pretty impressive to think about how these materials were cultivated even a hundred years ago. A human being might have lit a torch and then descended below the surface of the earth maybe even hanging from a rope in a shaft, to extract these metals. As verse 4 makes clear, this work is often done in remote locations. I lived in Colorado Springs in my early 20s, and my buddies and I, we had this phenomenal bachelor pad. Like, young lieutenants had no business living where we were living. I'm not sure how it happened still. We were the next to last house on the side of this mountain that overlooked all of Colorado Springs. We are on a road called Gold Camp Road. It was right before it turned into a dirt road and then sort of wound its way uh, back behind Pikes Peak over the mountains into Cripple Creek. And Cripple Creek is the only active uh, gold mine still in operation in Colorado. Now, you can probably guess why they called it Gold Camp Road. It was because of the gold rush that happened in Colorado in the mid-19th century. And I can remember being back out in this area, just there's, there's no sign of civilization in between kind of Colorado Springs and Cripple Creek. And you're out, I'm out there, whether in my Jeep or the mountain bike, and seeing evidence of human industry. And you can guess that why that was. It was because the miners were up there turning up the earth, trying to find gold, even though it was a remote, desolate region. Man will go to great lengths and exert much energy and risk all types of hazards to acquire these objects because of their value. And in verse 7 and 8, uh, we see that the resourcefulness of man is, is extolled once again. The falcon and the lion, they dominate the sky and the land, and yet even the falcon with his keen eyesight can't detect the hidden path to these precious stones. And the lion, with his unparalleled strength, he, he's never dislodged sapphires from the earth. And as the section comes to a close in verse 11, we're left to include, conclude that human industry is pretty impressive. 
through effort and know-how, man is able to take possession of precious jewels that would otherwise be inaccessible. The section ends with these words, the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. And the implicit question raised is, will we attach the same value to wisdom? Will we chase after it as human beings with the same vigor and the same sense of determination? As we continue now to verse 12, we enter section 2. And the poet raises this double question. We looked at it earlier. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? In Hebrew poetry, this is parallelism. Wisdom and understanding are used synonymously. And the acquisition of wisdom is now considered in relation to mining. Although man can descend into remote caverns of the earth and find precious stones, here's what we're going to see. Wisdom is even more inaccessible. If you have your Bible open, just look down at the verses that follow and note the number of negatives. Here's what we see. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. In other words, you can't find it above ground and you can't find it underwater. Okay, so if wisdom can't be located through exploration, maybe it can be purchased for the right price. Huh? Let's see. Does money talk? Well, the point made in verses 15 to 19 is that wisdom can't be acquired with great wealth. Again, we see a host of negatives. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer. In precious onyx or sapphire, gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be in exchange for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. The poet, he runs through this list of precious stones that were highly valued and concludes that all of them are worthless in the marketplace of wisdom. There is no amount of riches that can be exchanged for wisdom. Now, oftentimes, wisdom can lead to wealth, but wealth doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. Just think about the parable Jesus told of the rich man who had the abundant harvest. He had the bumper crop, and he's like, well, what should I do? with all of this. And he says, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll tear down my barns and I'll bid, build bigger barns. And do you remember what Jesus says about the man? What does he call him? He says, you fool. So wealth doesn't necessarily lead to wisdom. So coming up empty in the search for wisdom, the question is asked again in verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And this marks the start of the third section. In asking this question a second time, the poet is preparing to provide an answer to the question that has been posed. After reminding us in verses 21 and 22 that true wisdom is not of this world, it's, not, it's hidden from the eyes of the living and the dead, he begins to give us an answer. Listen to this, beginning now in verse 23. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight, and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain, and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. 
He established it and searched it out. In contrast to man, God knows the way to wisdom. And God's employment of wisdom is found in the structuring of the world. It's evident in four mysterious forces. The wind, the rain, the waters, and the thunderstorm. These marvels of nature are cited as just a few examples of God's wise ordering of the world. When God built the universe, he did so according to wisdom. And this leads to a conclusion. How is man to gain wisdom? Well, the poem concludes with God speaking for the very first time since the prologue of the book. Here's what we read. And he said to man, behold, that's a word that means, now watch this, listen close, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible will note that the fear of the Lord is a theme that's woven throughout all of scripture, is it not? In fact, You might have read this verse somewhere else or something that sounds very similar to it. In Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, Psalm 111, verse 10, Ecclesiastes 12.13, we find more or less the same assertion. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so the fear of the Lord is not a marginal issue. But I realize something, that this phrase is often confusing. Some think this must be a command that's unique to the Old Testament. I mean, surely God wouldn't want us to fear him. But let's look at the New Testament. What do we see in Matthew 10, 28? Well, here's what Jesus tells his followers. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Acts 9, 31, we discover that the early church, it says this about him. Look at that second sentence. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 2.12, we read that we're to work out our own salvation. It says there in the very end, with fear and trembling. As Christians, we're expected to fear the Lord. And you might wonder, well, let's just think about that for a moment because... God also tells us that we're supposed to draw near to him. So how does that work? How are you supposed to fear God and draw near to him at the same time? I mean, if you had arachnophobia and there was a closet full of spiders, would you be drawing near? Would you be walking in there? If you sort of had a fear of clowns and there was a bunch of clowns in a dark alley back there, sharpening knives, are you going to make your way into that alley? No, your fear of clowns would cause you to put some distance between you and that alley, would it not? Well, I think it might be helpful here to think about how the word fear is used in the Bible. It has several connotations. In, In some cases, the word fear can be used synonymously with terror. And it can describe the emotion that one might feel in a frightening situation. As an example of this, I think of Deuteronomy 2.25. This is what God tells the Israelites. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. 
And I would say for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus and confessed him as Savior and Lord, the path to wisdom, it begins with having this type of fear of the Lord. When you read Revelation 19 and you see the vision of Jesus descending on a white horse to execute judgment on his enemies, it's, it's an imagery that I think should provoke a, a, a sense of fear that could be described as terror as you think about being the object of his wrath. This is why John Newton, I think, would pen the words in that famous song we all know, Amazing Grace. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." His salvation began with realizing that he was subject to the judgment of a righteous God. But for those who are in a right relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus, we know that particular type of fear is relieved, right? And for those of us who are believers, for those who are in a right relationship with God, the fear of the Lord takes on a different dimension. Here's an example of that. We see it in Psalm 130. The psalmist exclaims this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? Iniquities is just another word for offense or for sin. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be what? Feared. Isn't this an interesting con connection here? The psalmist indicates that the knowledge of our forgiveness should lead to fearing God. How about that? Now, it, it, it's obvious from the passage that knowing your sins are forgiven, it shouldn't cause you to cower in fear every time that you think about God. That would be silly. And what the psalmist is teaching us is that knowledge of God's grace, it leads us into a relationship with God where we respond to him with reverence and awe and worship. And so the fear of God isn't something that should propel Christians away from God. Rather, it draws us closer to him. And this is made clear in Psalm 25, verse 14. We read this. The friendship of the Lord is for those who what? Fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. I'll share with you now a passage from Hebrews 12 that I think brings both of these connotations to light with a warning and an encouragement. So in verse 25 in Hebrews 12, we read this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So the writer of Hebrews has this dual audience in mind. He is writing to people who have sort of been around church. They've heard a few sermons. They're familiar with the good news. And he's talking to this audience in verse 25. And we see this very strong caution. If, if, if this audience persists in brushing off the good news, the writer says, just, just think about who it is that you're rejecting. And the idea of, of not escaping is one that should provoke a, a fear um, that could be described as, 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 uh, as maybe as a fright that would lead to, to repentance. But then the writer goes on to say this to his second audience, to those who have embraced the good news. In verse 28, he says, therefore, let us be grateful. So here's an attitude of gratitude. For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
So for those who are believers, even though God is a consuming fire, we can respond to him in gratitude, in reverence, and awe. John Piper offers a helpful definition for Christians looking to understand the fear of the Lord. Uh, He says this, The kind of fear that we should have toward God is whatever is left of fear when we have a sure hope in the midst of it. And as a way of trying to unpack this definition, let me share a a, a silly illustration that might be helpful. Uh, Back in 2019, uh, I mentioned that I used to live in Colorado. That's where my wife and I met, even though she grew up in Greensboro. Well, in 2019, we said, let's, let's take the kids to Colorado. Uh, let's visit old friends. Let's show them where we met, the old stomping grounds. And uh, it was one of the last days of the vacation out there. And I wanted to take them on a hike. We went hiking at a place called the Crags on the backside of Pikes Peak. Now, for those of you who know anything about hiking out west at altitude, you know that this is an activity best reserved for mornings and not afternoons because of the frequent afternoon thunderstorms. But the vacation was drawing to a close, and it was now or never, and bubbling with optimism, I said, no, come on, guys. You know, I, I, I convinced everyone that those, those dark clouds were just going to blow past us, and we're on the trail. I'm the kind of guy, I like to finish what I start. And uh, I knew that there was going to be some great views at the end, and there's some cool rock formations for the kids to go scrambling on. And I'd say we were a solid, like two and a half, three miles into the trail, right at the elevation where the tree line starts to thin out a little bit. And I felt the first raindrop. And about a minute later, the sky dropped. Now, if you have never been in a thunderstorm at altitude, it's a little bit different than um, back here at sea level. Let's just say you're a little bit closer to the action at 10,000 feet. And... um, You know how lightning works, right? Being in a meadow creates a bit of exposure for you because you're the tallest object around. And as the storm began to unleash its fury, rather than run back through the meadow that we had just come through and head down the trail for the tree line and hope for the best, we climbed into this cave of sorts that we had just passed that had been created by this large overhanging rock and we waited out the storm there. And the cave was deep enough that um, there wasn't much of a risk of of lightning just flashing over the rocks and there was room between the, you know, the the top of the cave and our heads. And I will say this, how we had not been in that cave, we would have been exposed to the full wrath of that storm. And there would have been cause for fear in the form of terror. But once we entered that cave, we were relatively secure and could listen to the explosions of the thunder echoing off the mountains and the, the lightning flashing around us, illuminating the dark sky. We could behold all of that knowing that our lives were not in danger. We had found a refuge and we knew that we would be safe. Pastor John Piper would say that if you're a Christian, the fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch it right in the middle of it. For those of us who are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it's the equivalent of being in a safe shelter in the midst of a, of a storm. We get the privilege of knowing him, of experiencing him 
in the midst of all of his power. And rather than being terrified by his awesomeness, we can instead draw near with reverence and awe. And we can know that we're safe in the loving arms of our Savior. And this is why we're told that perfect love drives out all fear. We know that nothing can separate us from his love. And yet because we know God for who he is, because we're seeking to get to know him and all of his awesomeness and his might and his holiness and his power, we still fear him in the sense that there is awe and there is reverence. This poem teaches us that we increase in wisdom not by investigating the philosophical questions of our day, but by obedience to God. Wisdom resides with him alone. It permeates all of his creative work. And wisdom can only be discovered in a relationship with him. And so God directs Job's attention away from his agonizing questions and toward him instead. God doesn't always take us by the hand and lead us to answers. But he turns us to him. And when we begin to make decisions based on our knowledge of him, based on a right understanding of who he is, and we have this desire to please him and to turn away from evil, what happens is then we begin to walk in wisdom. We get wise. How we respond to him is the litmus test for our hearts. Let me pray for us. God, I just think of that passage where it says that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that you are Lord. And I think some people are going to do that with much terror and trembling and fear. And others of us are going to do it with a, a sense of fear that's really marked by reverence and awe. And I pray that you would be at work in us, be at work in our hearts so that it would be the latter and not the former. I pray that you would help us to know you as you really are, that we might fear you, that it might excite us to do what would be pleasing to you and to turn away from evil and to walk in your ways. I thank you that, that even though we don't have wisdom in and of ourselves, that you would avail it to us through a relationship with you. I pray that as we grow in the fear of you, that we would also grow wiser as a people. And we ask this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.